Hello and welcome to Movie Go Round, the film podcast that rotates between different themes every week on a five-week schedule. This week's theme is Around the World. Hello everybody, joining me for Around the World Week, Nicole Davis, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. I'm excited to talk about this... uh... Is this our oldest movie that we've ever I looked believe at? So. I think it must be. Yes. Yeah. Very excited. This was your pick. We'll get into it in a moment. But David Luzier joining us as well. How are you? I am. I'm doing well. Well, I appear to be David Luzader, but I am a robot uh, who has just taken the appearance of David Luzader, and uh, he has lost all control of me, and he fears the inevitable consequences. Yeah, I hate when that happens. So it's a real bummer. <laughs> uh, I, I forgot. <laughs> Total bummer. Uh, my name is Brett Stewart. Forgot to introduce myself. But we are here for Around the World Week, which is where one of us gets to pick a film that is an international film, not made uh, and released here in the United States. Something different, something outside of our bubble, and bring it to the panel. Nicole, it was your pick this time for Around the World. However, before we talk about it, I do want to remind listeners that next week is You Did This to Us. If you're listening now, it means the voting has already happened. We vote ahead of time, but you can vote on future You Did This to Us picks by following us on Facebook and Twitter. Just search Movie Go Around Podcast. You'll find it. And then you too can vote for our demise of whatever... (laughs) Whatever movie you're going to make us watch. And Future Me is going to tell you right now what that is. Hey, everyone. Editor Nicole jumping in to let you know that next week's discussion will be about the film Fifty Shades of Grey. Keep in mind that I'm not aware what I'm in for when I react. And that's what we're going to be watching. (laughs) All right. So weird they picked an Andy Kaufman film. Okay. I know, right? Citizen Kane? Uh... (laughs) Very, very good. But let's let's go ahead and talk about Metropolis. It came out in 1927, our oldest film to date. Though though there's a there's an update in 1984, a significant update that we watched in particular. So Nicole, I'll let you take it away to tell us about why you picked this film, and I also like you to tell us about why you picked this release of the film. Okay. Although first we should probably give the synopsis of the film. I can do that. (laughs) In a futuristic city sharply divided between the working class and the city planners, the son of the city's mastermind falls in love with a working class prophet who predicts the coming of a savior to mediate their differences. This 1984 release of the film was reconstructed and scored by Giorgio Moroder. Uh, Nicole, now go ahead and tell us about about Metropolis (laughs) and why you picked it. I chose Metropolis number one because my list of picks to film, picks to film. Okay. I word real good. I swear. (laughs) My list of films for around the world is about 80, 85% East Asian cinema. So I wanted to make sure that I proactively choose some non-Asian films from time to time. So Metropolis is very much a German production. Um, wait, wait, this was a Kraut film? No one told me that. <laughs> Dang it, you didn't tell me we were going to have to watch something by those Jerry's. <laughs> uh, yes. So it's 
I picked, this is a masterpiece, a classic, a trendsetter is not the right word, an icon that science fiction movies still call back to today. And... You know, I thought it would be it would be fun to tackle it. And the, I picked the Giorgio Moroder version because it's the first one I was introduced to. It That came out when I was 12. So it was the first time I ever watched Metropolis. I actually took it out of the library. And I thought it was interesting and fun. You know, and it, was, it was okay. A little odd. And so I had like this veil of nostalgia. And then I watched it again. And now I'm not so sure I made the right choice in the Giorgio Moroder version, but it's still, it's an interesting cultural artifact. It was the most complete restoration that they could be made at the time uh, from what the materials that Moroder had available. And I, he wanted to try to make it feel contemporary and draw in contemporary audiences by adding a new score and new songs. And, um, yeah. <laughs> you know, you brought the best of both worlds because we get to talk about classic late 1920s cinema while also getting to take a dump on Loverboy, which really you don't get to do in many films. Yeah, so I I'd never seen any cut besides this as of now. <laughs> uh, I I will say, and for the listeners that want to go ahead and watch the film if you've never seen it, I really do wish that I hadn't done the thing I always do where I watch it like three hours before the show because I would have been well served by several deep dives into the symbolism of this film. I think I have a pretty good idea of what's going on, but I will even admit on the podcast, I should have spent more time with this. <laughs> but I did watch the special features <laughs> in the film. Uh, Nicole, you actually gifted me this specific cut of it on DVD. So I have some very interesting tidbits from I that. did. It It felt like the right choice for you somehow. <laughs> oh, totally. I, this, this, I don't like any of the music particularly in this, but I love the movie. And I love the, mu- the, the movie with the music too. I actually can't imagine it without it now that I've seen it. So I wasn't able to watch this movie on DVD or anything. I had to find a, a YouTube cut, which is fine. Like it was, there was the full movie, um, but I did feel like you know I, I probably would have served better by having something I could have watched on a nice screen and kind of taken my time with instead of uh, watching on YouTube and having a little picture of a man in the corner. But with the with the music the whole time it felt just like a little bit of like, this is somebody who took this movie, put it on YouTube and was like, and here's my reimagining of it. I have now scored it with, with songs that I love from the eighties. And those are also out there. There are many people have uploaded versions of Metropolis with their own music scores to it. One guy colorized the entire thing and put in sound dialogue and sound effects. Like when one of the workers, you know, when the the big machine explodes early in the movie and one of the workers gets thrown off, there's actually the Wilhelm scream (laughs) has been cut in there. There's one in this cut too. <laughs> so it's, yeah, but it's, it's much, much bigger in this other one. So I actually watched this. I watched this once and then I immediately watched 
the full 2010 restoration of the movie afterward. And that's the one where they found another print of the movie somewhere in like a vault in Argentina and spent ages restoring it. Some of the the footage was impossible Mm -hmm. to restore well. And it looks terrible, but it's been spliced in nonetheless, uh, just for the sake of completeness. But the rest of the film, it looks beautiful. It's beautifully, beautifully restored in black and white. All the intertitles have been restored, sometimes using the novel as a supplement. You know, Thea von Harbo wrote the novel first. It was something about rights, or they they decided to publish it as a book first and then make the film. But they they worked from that and they re-recorded the full score that was originally written for the film. And the score is absolutely lovely as well. I would highly, highly recommend all done by Loverboy? Entire... No, not done by No, it's Toto, actually. Um, <laughs> oh, but... I'm back in. <laughs> but in any case, highly, highly recommend picking up the full restored 2010 version of the film. It's like 148 minutes, which is only five minutes off the original cut of the film, the, the very first release. Right. Because the one we watched is like 80 yeah, it's 80 it's something minutes. And that is primarily because of, well, for two reasons. One, he used subtitles instead of intertitles. Yeah, that was interesting. So that way it doesn't break the flow of the film at all to like cut to a, in silent movies, it cuts to a black screen with the dialogue or other explanatory stuff on it and then cuts back into the movie. Whereas to keep it flowing, he decided to use subtitles instead on this print. And also the frame rate was adjusted to 24 frames a second, which in some cases was a little faster Hmm. than how it had been done before. So that cut some time off the runtime as well. Yeah, there's Um, a... I was going to say, there's there's still a few like intertitles at part. And it does this thing that I, I love that you see in old movies sometimes with some of these silent films. The part that comes to mind for me is when Maria and and Rothfang, is that is that his name? That's like the professor. The inventor, kept, yeah. Yeah, it's yeah, like... mad scientist. Yeah, it's like Maria and Rothfang had a fight and she escaped. And it's like, okay, I guess <laughs> that's just, that's all we're going to get about that. And it's like these little plot points are like, this happened off screen and now we're taking to you we're taking you to where it's picking up from there right and that used to be in footage if you the full restoration actually has the sequence i wondered about that yeah yeah um that's what i was gonna say is i is i wondered if there was a sequence shot because so much of of what i read about this film is that you know lang shot a lot of footage like to an to an extraordinary uh painful david fincher degree times yes, 10 he certainly did. it was 17 months in production this movie right and and Ooh. there was there was shots like like the shot where uh was it fredier or our, our main freighter freighter uh when he when he meets maria the first time and he's on his knees and he's like you know in awe of her he that was shot over the course of two days to get a minute long scene because they wanted to get it <laughs> perfect but on top of that just there's so many cuts of this film that have just slight differences because there's so many scenes that were shot as long as we're talking about the reconstruction a little bit i do want to talk about some stuff that marauder mentioned in the special features which was that he found prints in australia los angeles and new york 
and the Australian one was the most complete. That was the one that actually had the tinted tone, the original tinted tone of some of the colors in it that he then used to make a lot of the color in the film and to mimic it as closely as he could. Similarly, there were cuts. Like, for instance, he had a French cut, and the French cut had the subtitles instead of the uh, instead of the cards, which is why we saw him use the subtitles. But then in that cut, there's a shot where someone walks in from the left, and then in a different cut from the Museum of Modern Art that he had, that person walks in from the right. It's not because the shot's flipped. It's because it's a different shot. <laughs> they filmed it so many times, and there was so many different cuts out there that little things like that, he was able to piece together to the best of what he had available to him in the early 80s really a curated selection of pretty much any shot he wanted to use, which is incredibly cool. And just, we can have a whole conversation about how much of this art is Lang's and how much of it becomes Marauders once he re-edits this and, and obviously adds the score. But that part, that part lends a lot of credence to the, my opinion that his impact on this is immeasurable. Oh, geez. Just uh, speaking to what you were talking about, about some of the working conditions, I just came across this, uh, but the part when the city is flooded, they had they they had the actors and 500 children from the poorest districts of Berlin work for 14 days in a pool of water that Lang intentionally kept at a low temperature. Well, you know, he wanted it to be real, which is like also weirdly screwed up when you consider like the giant motif is hey, working class yeah. fight for better conditions, <laughs> but uh, not against yeah. me though, not against me, against your your corporate oppressors. Oh, yeah, those stunts. There were 38,000 38, extras in this movie. That is insane. Yeah, yeah. You know, these stunts, I'm I'm willing to bet that they don't just look, but really were super dangerous with so many kids, especially on that staircase scene where they have hundreds of children packed onto this staircase with a metal railing. And I keep... Kept waiting for one of them to like topple off the side. Yeah, and uh, thankfully, apparently, did not. But <laughs> as far as we know, uh, right. speak, speaking to the extras, IMDb has a great breakdown of it. And the, my favorite is there's uh, twenty five thousand men, eleven thousand women, one thousand one hundred bald men. Okay, <laughs> don't know why we're putting those in a separate category. It really is a a massive production not only like for the time but even like today just the amount of people you don't see a lot of movies with this many people in it real people yeah real not people. cg yeah. people <laughs> right you think of you think of like the late 90s early 2000s when ridley scott was like wait i don't have to fill a coliseum we can just film 40 people and add them all over the place exactly. and that worked really well and that became the standard for large crowds but not in 1926. Yeah. No, I think the uh, all the bald men are for that shot of um, Freighter's vision of the, the giant machine when the packs of workers are being led up the staircase into its mouth. And they're, I believe they're all bald just because of the look. So It's the heart machine. Yes, um, the heart yeah. machine. But I mean, that's a fantastic fantastic shot he's having this vision of it being like this demonic creature and in the restoration he he calls out and there's a big title card that says moloch which was this pagan god that people would sacrifice children to 
And so that's what he, he recognizes it as. But in that shot, as they're leading ranks of workers in dark clothes up these light colored stairs, the jaggedness at the top and bottom of the column of workers makes it look like a closing jaw with pointed teeth as they go up. If you watch carefully the way they've got the, the worker's space, it looks like they're actually being devoured. And it's pretty amazing for 1927. <laughs> There's a, oh my gosh, absolutely. Yeah, there's a few very, very impressive shots for the time that even like today would be really impressive. Like I'm even thinking, just thinking of the, the one of the, the opening shot of the workers leaving their factory and doing their oh, slow yeah. march and they're all kind of in this lockstep together. That's iconic, and, yeah. Oh yeah, I mean, it's, it's hugely iconic, but to, to the, the amount of people that are in that shot for all of them to be relatively in similar step. You can see why, you know, Lang being in the perfectionist that he apparently was, uh, I imagine that probably took more than a couple of times to shoot. I, it must have, because it's very carefully, you know, the workers going in are going at a certain speed and the workers coming mm -hmm. off their shift are going at, I believe, exactly half yeah. that speed. So for every two steps on one side, it's one on the other. I mean, guys, it's no equilibrium. Oh, yeah, equilibrium. It's certainly no equilibrium. <laughs> Cinematic masterpiece. Equilibrium. Yes, that, that borrowed from quite a few sources. <laughs> yeah, I watched uh, The Wall recently for Hit Me One More Time, and that, you know, the kids marching into school feels largely reminiscent of things we saw in this movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's interesting you bring The Wall up, because I was thinking about that as well, because The Wall has a lot of imagery that's like, stilted moving marching to the music and like it has a lot of that and one thing that's really cool about this movie is that the way the characters are moving and this is in part due to the frame rate and in part due just to the, the way it was filmed um particularly down in the machines where they're working you have these guys that are like their, their heads are all bobbing in unison they have these giant clock type things that they have to like pull and they have to pull them in really crazy directions and it's really erratic like there's not really like a fluid rhythm to it and when you pair that then with marauders music it it, it looks like a laurie anderson music video like it, it <laughs> totally works it looks like something avant-garde of its time and i think that that's one of the reasons the 80s music works so well for it <laughs> i really do dig that part i mean i honestly believe that Giorgio Moroder's the parts that are score that he did personally, I think I really like. And I think it works well yeah. for, you know, this quote unquote futuristic movie to have a synth score on mm -hmm. it. It's not as it's not as pretty, say, as the classical score that was originally written for it, but it works with the material. get to the pop songs <laughs> and then, yes and then freddie mercury god bless him love some love me some freddie mercury uh just starts coming in over some of these parts and it's like hmm, okay pet pet benatar okay let's and, go and here's the funny thing so so you know Giorgio marauder famously has this this amazing recording studio 
I'm totally blanking on the name in Germany that, you know, the Stones have used and, and, and Bowie used it. And like, like a lot of people used it. He worked with a lot of these people. Uh, he had at his disposal a bevy of the finest icons of the eighties. And, uh, we were, you know, wondering in our pre-show chat, if the reason he ended up with a lot of like B and C list 80 stars, like Billy Squire and Bonnie Tyler and, you know, a lot of one hit wonders was because it was just the people coming through Germany on tour at the time yeah. and he pulled them into the studio. And I wanted to believe that was the truth. But having now watched special features, I don't believe it is. I think he somewhat <laughs> curated this selection because he recorded this for two years. He started this in the beginning of 1982 and was working on it nonstop, bringing people into the studio, doing all sorts of work, uh, bringing orchestras into the studio for those selections. <laughs> and he's talking in the special features about like how much he loves Pat, Pat Benatar and stuff. And like, that's great. And I'm glad he loves Pat Benatar. But I just find that funny with a man where like the Rolling Stones are working next door. And he's like, oh, give me Billy Squire. I keep using Billy Squire because that's one of the weirder ones in here. Yeah, um, I don't understand some of these choices i mean even it i love pat benatar i think she has a beautiful voice but the song she's given to sing is way at the top of her range and it's it is it's uncomfortable it's almost unrecognizable as pat benatar yeah it's it's uncomfortable to listen to she's so high up there for so long And then, you know, there's random Adam Ant in there and Billy Squire and Loverboy, <laughs> some band yeah, called so, Cycle 5 or Cycle 7 or something, some cycle. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, where's Donna Summer? This guy made so, Donna like, Summer huge. King of disco. <laughs> right. This this dude, this dude is... is Almost single-handedly responsible for like Euro disco and the way it sounds. Can I? Yeah, unfortunately, he kept the same lyricist who wrote Ooh. all the songs for who Donna Summer. So, the guy writing songs for Metropolis, this icon of science fiction, is the guy who wrote Hot Stuff and Love to Love You, Baby. You know, it's just <laughs> <laughs> I I have a confession to make concerning uh, Giorgio Moroder. I had never heard of him before until until the Daft Punk song, Giorgio by Marauder. My name is Giovanni Giorgio, but everybody calls me Giorgio. That was, my, was my first exposure to his name. I'm sure I'd heard music that he had done before, obviously, but yeah. I was un unaware of him until that fact and still kind of since then, largely unaware of his work. Hey, I'm all for <laughs> young artists promoting stuff that was clearly inspirational to them and, and influential to them. And Daft Punk totally did that with him. Um, I do want to say that I, I hate the fact I've seen half of the artists live because I'm about to poop on all of them. Which but, half? Which half? <laughs> yeah, so I went through it. There's eight There's eight artists, if you don't include Marauder, which I wouldn't simply because he's not like a touring artist. Um, I've not seen Freddie Mercury. Uh, 
John Anderson, he's he's in yes. And I should preface, the reason I've seen all this crap is, and email me or tweet me, I don't care, is um, <laughs> because I worked for a summer for a, uh, a music publication where we'd get passes to the kind of music uh, shows you have in the summer when there's not a pandemic that um, are like $30 general lawn seats at the local amphitheater that like Alice Cooper shows up like four times that summer. This is the this is the tour of the washed up 1980s rockers. Um, so John Anderson, I've I've seen yes, uh, Loverboy, I've seen Loverboy, uh, Pat Benatar, but I've not seen Bonnie Tyler. Don't you? See, oh, I was about to say no, no, <laughs> you, nobody gets to slag um, Pat Benatar. and Billy Squire. I, I, I it's Billy. I saw Billy Squire, and like I, none of these shows. Are, are particularly remarkable. Granted, I saw them in like 2014. So it was well past the prime of any of these folks. Uh, but I was just thinking to myself, like I've probably seen more of these than people who grew up with them because of that freaking con- concert series. <laughs> it was the, it was the, we need a paycheck tour. Yeah. 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 But also like, re- like, yeah, like the Bonnie Tyler inclusion feels really weird to me. And like, they don't even let her do her like Husky iconic, like, Rod Stewart, but a woman sound like <laughs> Rod Stewart, but I've never a woman. Heard it that way, but it, I really kind of. You're fits. not. You're not wrong. You're not wrong. Yeah, they don't let her do that. Now here's a riddle rhyme. If she's the same, how come she's different now? The same old eyes, but not the shine. It's a, it's a weird soundtrack, and I'm here for it. Like I'm like I'm gonna make fun of it because it's so of its time, but I'm I'm here for it. It really does. <laughs> I really do like the movie with it. But we'll, we'll dive into some of our some of our discussion topics. Well, wait before I just want to say I was about to I was about to slag these songs because they're they're tremendously obvious in terms of lyrics. You know, oh, they're yeah. super <laughs> on the nose. But then again, you know, I was rewatching the movie, and I was just like. Oh, yeah, this whole movie's kind of really on the nose. It is not subtle. Oh, what? And it's you packaging. don't, you don't say, that, say yeah. at all. The final <laughs> shot of the proletariat, the bourgeoisie shaking hands. <laughs> yes. Is it, a little on the nose. Father, you're the, you're the brains of this city. You're the head of the city. Oh, the head and the hands must come together. And they need a heart as the mediator. <laughs> yeah, it's all a little obvious. So actually, you know, let's talk about that though, because that is one of our discussion topics I added. You know, over the years, this has had a lot of thematic overtones people have talked about, the two of which are mostly either political or religious. The religious side of it is you have like this messiah figure in our main character. Freder, I'm going to, what is his name? Fredier? Freder. Freder. I will get this right by the end of the show. So Freder <laughs> is kind of like that, that Jesus-esque figure of bringing the, the, the hands of the working class together with the elite and, and like trying to put everyone on a level playing field. And he is the heart. And I think that's probably a better analysis if you're going to compare it to the other one of the time, which was a lot of people attacked it for being communists and having communist overtones, which I just don't understand because no. communism is not about 
class cooperation. Like in this movie, it literally ends with them shaking hands and being like, oh, hey, workers, I'll treat you better, but I'm still in charge. Like that's not communism, (laughs) nor is communism a portrait of like ignorance amongst the amongst the common class. Like there's a lot of parts of this movie where the people who are following Maria or fake Maria are shown as being like really malleable and you can literally just point them in any direction and say, burn the witch and they kind of do it. And like, that's, that's not really Marxist philosophy. It like, it gives the working class more credit than that, at least in my understanding of it. So I I don't, I think part of it was like, there is this, there's a fear of communism and impending Nazism in the twenties and thirties. And that of course is going to rub people wrong with a movie coming out of Germany in between the two world wars. But I think the religious overtones are much more apt and it's heavy handed, but I think that's what he was going for. I think he's going for, for him being, being our Jesus. Uh, I also want to talk about the, the workers being so easily led for a second, because I couldn't help but laugh when fake Maria, Robo Maria was like, destroy the machines. And I think his name was, uh, was Grote was the, like the 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 worker, the foreman who was like, Hey, you idiots, if you destroy this machine, <laughs> you're going to flood your own homes. And then it happens, and they're like, why are our homes flooded? <laughs> it's like, I, you, I told you people that if you did this, <laughs> this was going to happen. Uh, but I, I, hey, I think, did you guys forget that you didn't pay a babysitter and all your kids were at home <laughs> watching TV? Right. And so we had to <laughs> ring the bell. He to, literally says, you will kill your children. And <laughs> uh, like one of the nine lines of dialogue this movie decides to give you. Yeah. And that's, I guess, David, that actually leads into another discussion topic I had. We can kind of knock out some of the political overtones early on here, which is that like this movie shows you two sides of a revolution, right? There is a peaceful Maria and the destructive Maria. There's a peaceful one that wants to organize and and be peaceful about it. And then there's the Maria that wants to burn the house down. That would have been a fun inclusion in this movie. Um, but in any case, the song Burn the House Down, I would have liked to have seen more talking heads. <laughs> um, in any case, so the movie seems to make a pretty obvious case for the former, you know, go ahead and be peaceful. Don't burn it down because look what happens when you try to burn it down. You accidentally flood right. the city. Uh, but there's something there. He's he's trying to show you two sides of a revolution and different ways to go. And there's it's obvious what Lang believes is the more fruitful. Yeah, it's, it's not a revolutionary film or a film about revolution in the sense that you see a lot of times of like, ah, the working class rises up and takes down the bourgeoisie and like they're corrupted by the same things that corrupted the, the upper class. It is literally the working class destroying themselves at behest of the upper class. You know, the upper class, for some reason, really hate these workers and the people that keep their city running, they want to destroy their own ways of life. But yeah, I found it interesting for the time being even kind of so contradictory to what we see a lot of now when it comes to revolutionary films, which is like when the revolution happens, things actually kind of get crappier for even when people take over in the upper class is like, no, they don't even get to the upper class. They don't even go to the upper city to spread their revolution. The only time they go to like the upper city is when they have to find fake Maria and burn her as a witch, which I was here for. Yes. And, and, and it's funny. Cause like I was reading some, some various takes on this and I went into some 
very interesting reddits for politics that I normally do not occupy. Oh boy. <laughs> and, um because like literally like social like like democratic socialists are like this is our movie and then communists are like it's our movie and they all fight over Metropolis. Wow. But one point I did think was kind of poignant to me is that in a way this movie kind of like is the perfect ending for the borderline fascist capital that the movie demonizes because like david said they never take their revolution into metropolis the the people who live in metropolis don't are don't really know what's happening with this really it's just the perfect quelling of an insurrection at the end of the movie it really does take care of itself you can shake hands and nothing nothing gets done right it's like okay you know Will we, the upper class, will recognize the efforts of the workers right. and will treat you with more respect? And you guys go back to your place right. and you go uh, back to the underground. Go back to work, and we'll uh, we'll see you in the morning. You know, yep. kind of we will <laughs> have we will have Workers' Day once a year where we are like, hey, good good job. You guys can right. see sunlight every once in a while. Yeah. Email us if you, if you, if particularly if, if you subscribe to any of the, you know, political ideologies that, that tend to be part of this movie. Let us know. Well, it is well worth noting that the primary writer, Thea von Harbu, who was married to Fritz Lang at the time. A little bit of a Nazi. She, uh, when Fritz Lang left in 1933, she stayed behind and became a Nazi and yeah. uh, made films for the fatherland. And. Reportedly, when she died, she had two photos on her wall, one of Mahatma Gandhi and one of Adolf Hitler. So, oh, oh, fun fact. You know who really liked this movie? Hitler. Ooh. Hitler. Yeah. Adolf Hitler. <laughs> yeah, because Hitler's totally looking at himself. Uh, historically, I could, I could see a young Hitler watching this and being like, oh, I'm Fredier, Frederick. What is his name? Frederson. Or is he Is he meant to be the mediator or is he meant to be the ruler? <laughs> oh, I think he thinks he's meant to be the mediator. Uh, Hitler historically had this very like, I am Jesus-esque mindset. Yeah, it, it was Hit, Hitler and Goebbels both uh, really enjoyed the film. <laughs> Woof. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Lang being half Jewish was just like, oh, I see what's coming. See ya. Oh, well, you know, you know what Goebbels <laughs> told him was, uh, Mr. Lang, we decide who is Jewish and who is not. And Lang was like, I'm out of here. <laughs> yeah. So, so that's interesting because the, the special features talked about the, the two biggest threats to this movie being preserved. The first is nitrate film, that you have this film that will literally combust. It is made out of the same mm-hmm. thing that gunpowder is made out of. Um, it will combust when opened. <laughs> like, you don't have to light a match or anything like yeah, that. If you're not super careful, it'll go spontaneously. Yeah. Right. And, and it's kind of crazy because they talk about how so many of these epic, amazing films of the 20s and 30s are being lost now to nitrate film that have not been appropriately re- reconstructed into more modern mediums. And it kind of reminds me of like how famously universal records did not back up like things like Buddy Holly's masters and John Coltrane's masters. And then when there was a, a fire, maybe about 10 years ago now, there was a fire and the fire took out all those masters different. It's not self-combusting <laughs> but um yeah. certainly speaks to the fire was still involved yeah fire was still involved it speaks to the value of, of maintaining these wonderful artifacts but like that was the first thing was that you're it's a fight against time and marauder was also experiencing that in order to get good quality cuts of it before they are damaged the yeah. second one was the nazis was that once 
there was a Nazi takeover of Germany. They assumed control of German cinema. They destroyed a lot of German cinema. And a lot of these like masters and stuff got spread throughout Europe and like hidden and like just vaults and stuff, like like Nicole said earlier in the show. So between those two forces, it it's kind of a miracle that we have as many cuts of this as we do. Oh, it absolutely is, because film back then too was vi- was viewed kind of as disposable in a sense of like we make it, we play it. It plays until people don't want to see it anymore, and then we're good. We're done. Like, there's a lot of things, even like more in more recent memory, too. Um, a bunch of old Doctor Who is just lost yeah. because they either just destroyed the tapes or like reused them, like filmed over them because <laughs> we already played it. Why are we going to play it again? It's, you know, the 80s. I remember it, the. The year of the of the fiftieth anniversary of Doctor Who, which I think would have been twenty thirteen or no, it would have been twenty fourteen. No, twenty thirteen because that About was theirs, yeah. It, it released the day JFK got killed. In twenty thirteen, they actually found two more episodes. I, it's kind of what you're referring to, and mm-hmm. they were like in a TV station in South Africa that was like shut yes. down for forty <laughs> years on VHS. Yes, I remember hearing about that now. Yeah, that's and that's how like aside from vaults, you just find out like one guy taped it. And has been sitting on it for all these years. Some dude was up at 2 a.m. watching their local UHF station, you know, Channel 38. And it's the only only reason Mr. Ed Cut still exists, if you ask me. Oh, boy. (laughs) I'm kind of okay with that one being lost in history. But (laughs) (laughs) that's my personal view. But yeah, this is, I mean, this movie was cut for time and cut from censorship although weird things like this her outfit in the nightclub gets left in but like, i was so surprised by that cut out <laughs> i was so surprised by her outfit in the nightclub i was like this was allowed in 1927 well this was i mean it was germany so the, the oh, code yeah. had no bearing on it but i mean this was germany like in the tail end of the weimar era where it was sort of this era of decadence and freedom of expression free love free much more socially permissive time in germany they took a hard right on that about 10 years later yeah this this woman's wearing like a see-through skirt and pasties (laughs) yeah well yeah because when she first comes up on that stage and she turns around i'm like is that her butt am i like Am I seeing her butt? That's like, and then she takes the robe off, and I'm like, oh, okay, we're getting close to nipple territory. <laughs> yeah, there. dangerously close. Um, <laughs> let, let, I'll, we have we have a bunch more discussion topics, so I'll kind of just lead them through for us. Uh, I think this makes sense to touch on next, which is a Tower of Babel scene, because I think this does tie to that religious iconography as well. This is and not in any subtle oh, way, right? Uh, no. <laughs> yeah, I mean, so. Briefly, right, you have the Tower of Babel in the, in the city of Babylon, and it. I I learned today that like Babylon, Bab- the Tower of Babel never actually collapses in like the main part of the Bible. It's like one of those like off chapters no one cares about. From like, mm-hmm. oh, I'm gonna get so many emails, <laughs> but uh, it's just, no, you know what I mean though. It's like the thing that was written 700 years later. The apocrypha. The, the apocrypha, yeah. yeah, yeah. But apparently, that's where they talk about it, like falling down and stuff. But yeah, you have this outstandingly beautifully shot scene probably my favorite scene in the movie of maria recounting the story of the workers building the town the tower of babel and how obviously it was a 
symbol of oppression to them and a symbol of greatness to the people who told them to build it. And obviously, like, the main city capital in Metropolis is, like, New Babel or whatever, so it's not particularly subtle. But the shots are outstanding. It's like these... There's, like, 900 extras just, like, making a tower. And I'm just thinking for the 20s how remarkable it is. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's some really good... Some of the sets are are just huge, but, you know, some of it is really clever in-camera effects where they're using mirror projection onto sets with miniatures to make it look like they're in these huge spaces when really they're just on a regular soundstage. But yeah, I mean, this is beautiful. This has been in the Marauder version. This is tinted gold. It's a different color from anything else in the movie, this whole mm. Tower of Babel story. And yeah, I mean, it's it's beautiful and it's not subtle. No, no, no. <laughs> the need for the brains of the operation to tell the workers what's going on and why they're making it and not just order them around and expect them to hop. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll Google search at some point in the podcast, but Orson Welles did have a quote I saw on this movie Something to the to the note of turn off your mind a little bit. This is more eye candy than anything else. Like he he didn't put a ton of weight in, in this because it was so heavy handed to him. It really is a movie that I, I have to imagine, even for the time, you know. And we're talking about how obvious it is to us. It would probably be just as obvious to everybody watching it at the time. But you just you got to do that with sci-fi. Sometime you just got to kind of let it wash over you. Uh, I really enjoyed. Raised by Wolves, which was a a recent show on HBO Max, nothing is subtle in that. The main factions in the war that destroyed Earth were atheists and what may as well have been Catholics. No subtlety in any of that. But when you go along and just kind of like enjoy the ride of it, there's a lot of fun you can have. I mean, there's so many things about this movie I could sit here and nitpick, but I'm not going to because... First of all, it was 1927. It was such a different time than it is now, filmmaking and storytelling-wise. And also because I think that Damage is discussing all this other stuff about the film that we've kind of talked about. So I, I mixed up my Wells. Uh, it was H.G. Wells that, that commented on the film. It happens. Uh, right? Oh, yeah. He thought it was silly. Yeah, he thought it was <laughs> trite. And its politics were absolutely ludicrously simplistic. Okay, H.G. Wells. Let's talk but about I mean, the time machine. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, the Babel scene is is lovely and it's beautiful, and it's this allegory of how things can go wrong when the head and the heart, the head and the hands, don't work together with a heart. But you know, it's Babel and Babylon, and that's brought back in. See, this is a problem <laughs> with the way this movie was cut originally because the restoration. There's this big sequence where Frater goes into a cathedral and he sees a monk preaching. And the, the monk is preaching about Babylon. He's preaching from Revelations and talking about the whore of Babylon. And that's what the fake Maria is dressed as in the nightclub. She is the whore of Babylon, like quite almost literally in terms of uh, she's raised up by what look like men of African descent or maybe Egyptian. And so she's up on like this plinth and it's all this art deco theming. But later when she's raised up again on the pedestal, she's sitting on a beast with seven heads and 10 horns. And she's holding up a cup that in revelations was, Oh boy, it was uh, something about the filth of her fornications is in that cup. 
it's it's not subtle she's the and she's being held up on a you know that the beast is being held up by the seven deadly sins oh yeah the seven deadly sins which is also in the cathedral so those are are tied together much 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 better in the original cut of the movie you know it's a little confusing to not have the preaching tied in with it whatever whatever i can give you know the, the digs i can make at this film that death costume yeah is rad it is really that rad. was so good <laughs> it was like I, when it started I, I thought like okay maybe these are just like cheaply made mannequin statues when it started moving i was like oh crap i want that thing for halloween that is so cool looking yeah you could probably build it i bet I, yeah it probably wouldn't be too too crazy but it was just it's it's very effective and that's one thing i really love like the the makeup in this movie is not not subtle at all but again like it was kind of a, a feature of the time but there's yeah, also something everybody that, gets eyeshadow yeah. exactly <laughs> and like you know brightly colored or dark lips to really make them stand right. out but there's something too about the way that it's used because it's it's mimicking kind of stage production right like that's kind of what we're coming from as we do it on stage production we do it now here on film and film wasn't as good back then as it is now so you know things have got to get played up a little bit to be a little more obvious but i just i love the way that it makes people look sometimes it's really exaggerated makeup and we make fun of it now if movies do it but when i watch it and stuff like this it's really effective absolutely absolutely and there, there, there's a lot of this that Nicole put in our docket to talk about that, that is silent film specific. These conventions of unnecessary inner titles, sometimes no tiles for dialogue when the meaning can just be taken from context and everyone gets eyeshadow. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about some of those. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, you, you have to have a great appreciation for the ability of these films, as you say here, Nicole, to just show you like people's mouths moving for 10, 20 seconds at a time. And do a reasonably good job of giving you an idea of what they might be talking about. Definitely. There's whole stretches where they don't tell you what's being said. But you know when when Freder is talking to his father and the way that he's like talking to him, you're like, okay, I get what's going on here. I understand. Yeah, it's like he's being really earnest and then his father says something stern and then he looks really disappointed and, yeah, you know, sort of crestfallen. You get that. I mean, but some of that was just because it was missing. Uh, for a long time you know like the preaching when the false maria is trying to whip up the workers down in their sort of hidden church we see her in this cut we see her like clearly she's whipping them up into a frenzy but we don't know what she's saying and in the restoration we find out you know (laughs) but i mean you don't actually need to have that to understand what's going on trying to get them whipped up to violence yeah it certainly helps to maybe add a little more context and a little more depth to some of what's going on. But it, it's, as you said, it's completely effective on its own. The way she's gesturing and the people are reacting to her words, you just, you know, in, inherently like, okay, she's getting ready to start the revolution. Here we go. Right. And I love those shots where like she throws both of her arms straight up overhead to the point mm-hmm. where like her elbows are bending inward almost. And it looks like she's casting a spell. Mm-hmm. You know, like, I yeah. think Disney stole that for some of the Wicked Queens casting magic, <laughs> you know, back in the 50s. Because that's who it reminded me of. I think it was, was it Maleficent in the original oh. Sleeping Beauty animated film? Something like that, where yeah, she so makes think, a yeah, big she, gesture she, like that. She has her, her cloak kind of comes out like wings right, when she right, does right, that. Right. Yeah. 
But, right. you know, that's for all intents and purposes, you know, it makes the false Maria look like a witch casting a spell and they call her a witch later. I was going to say, as they later call her and then burn her. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'm like, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> this is supposed to be the future and you're still burning people? And actually burn her. Like in real life, he insisted on using real fire. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah. The dress caught fire. Yeah, that's real fire. Oof. Yeah, she got a little scorched. <laughs> Oh, just yeah, a little? Yeah. That's good. Fortunately, just a little. I mean, her dress right. caught fire, but Jeez. that's to be fair. To be fair, though, like like I my my recent love of 2020 was uh, Lovecraft Country, and Jussie Smollett got burned on that show, walking through fire, like because they had a shot with fire. It's like that that still happens, <laughs> but. I don't think it's flagrantly <laughs> with uh, no care for the for the safety of the performer. I'm sorry. I said Jesse Smollett. I said Journey Smollett, his sister. Let's not talk about him. Okay. I was like, I was like, Jesse Smollett. I was going to watch that show, but yeah, Jesse yeah, Smollett. Yeah. Uh, I mean, yes, it's still, it certainly still happens today, but silent films, people would do a lot of extremely risky things. Oh, uh, to shoot yeah. a movie. Buster, I mean, there's so many stories of Buster Keaton people being like, you're going to kill yourself if you do this. <laughs> there's the the famous shot, I believe it's it's uh, Buster Keaton, right? Where the house, the front of the house falls yeah, and he's in the window. That's so many people try to talk him out of it. And like people, nope, like people couldn't watch it happen because they thought, okay, we're going to kill this man. Uh, so they turned away <laughs> while it was happening because they couldn't watch it. It's it's insane the things that they would would do back then. Yeah, yeah, that is wild. And, and Nicole, you mentioned you know the, the scene where she's where she's riling up the workers. That that is another one I wanted to point out that works really well with the the eighties music <laughs> because again, like it almost looks like she's Sheila E playing drums without the drums. Like she's just like all over the place. It works really well with the music. I think. Um, moving on. Oh, by the way, so much boob clutching. You put that in your teeth. <laughs> so, why is that a silent film thing? It's to to express emotion, you know, like extreme yeah. emotion, like your your heart's literally this, being tugged, kind of thing. Right. It, this is the stage actors, like David said, coming to the film without realizing there's. Yeah, a people yet. can't really see it. Like I'm doing it to myself right now. Like you know, you kind of grab your chest and you like tighten your. You bring so you you. You grab them from the outside and then you bring them together, kind of symbolizing like my heart is trying to come out of my chest. For a man, it looks like kind of whatever. For a woman, it's going to be, I'm pushing my boobs together. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to make the uniboob and it's just, <laughs> exactly. is it working? Yeah. My heart's about to pop out of my boob. <laughs> right. So transitioning from that to expressionism. <laughs> <As you do. laughs> getting used to f- expressionist film conventions, uh, fantastical proportions. Uh, imagery, dramatic lighting, etc., used to convey inner emotions. Correct me if I'm wrong, Nicole, but the 20s for Lang and his contemporaries in German cinema was kind of expressionist time. Oh, 100%. That was a big absolutely, deal. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Murnau, you know, Nosferatu, the uh, something of Dr. Mabuz, the cabinet of Dr. Caligari especially is is the one that kind of kicked it off of German expressionism in film. And it was very much these off-kilter sets were built to make the viewer feel off balance and draw you into what a what a crazy world it was you know and this they make the machines look like monsters they make the the machine that freighter takes a turn at looks like a clock 
even though it's not. But it's yeah. it becomes a clock later where he's fighting it to try to get it the end of his shift and it won't go. It's fighting him back to go backward. I mean, it is very dramatic and it's there are times where you're just like, really? You know, like when <sighs> Freighter's listening to Maria and he falls to his knees and this bright white light <laughs> falls upon him. <laughs> where it's but that's the meeting of the Madonna, right? You talked about the Oh, the whore, Madonna whore the Madonna. thing. They, they, yes, I, would, I had said that it was. it's the least subtle it has ever been on film in this movie, right. where you've got this saintly figure of Maria, you know, who shepherds and takes care of all the children and who is kind to the worker and preaches peace and looking for a loving solution that involves the heart. And then the false Maria is the whore of Babylon is not just the whore of the Madonna whore complex, but the whore, the whore, the whore of Babylon. (laughs) Capital W there. With a capital W. Yeah. With the expressionism thing, I think where where we talked about Freighter taking it to the extreme sometimes, there are points in this movie where I would describe his movements as Jim (laughs) Carrey-esque. The well-known expressionist of our times. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) am I wrong? Write me, write me, and tell me I am. When he wakes up in the hallucination, you're not totally wrong. His eyes are like wide, and uh, he's looking at death. And uh, yeah, yes. the, the hallucination—that was—that <laughs> was interesting. Also, kind kind of a weird side jag here. It's going to annoy Nicole. So, me talking about as if I'm old, even though I'm not. Oh, okay. Yes, you're right. One thing I've noticed I've not I'm not able to do anymore is determine people's age when they're about ten years or older, younger than me. So, like, I can't tell the difference between Claire's. You know, she's a teacher. Her seventh graders look the same as her juniors. And I just, they're all tiny. And I didn't pick up on the fact that Maria is 17 in this, the actress, because she doesn't look 17 to me at all. When she started, by the time they were done filming, she was 26. Uh, (laughs) Brigitte Helm was 17 when she was cast and was like 18 when they finished, but she's shot and treated as if she is a full-grown adult, and she's made up that way. She she didn't look like a teenager to me, certainly, although she's she's made no, to look beautiful, absolutely gorgeous. The way she's shot and the way the lighting is done makes her eyes look almost cat-like in mm-hmm. those shots where it's just a close-up of her face. And yeah, yeah she's, a, she's a lovely girl. She lovely does. Girl. She does great. Very expressive even in the times when it's bordering on too much, I think it really plays into what's happening in the film. I just really enjoyed her performance. I thought she was was really delightful. And the times where I found Freighter a little bit goofy, maybe at certain times, I, I, I just... Would, I would agree. I, would I really agree. enjoyed everything she did. Even when it was kind of maybe to the same levels of goofy. There's something about it where I'm like, yeah, get it, get it. Yeah, like, I might mangle this, but it's a Gustav Friolik. There's an umlaut over the first O. So, yeah, Gustav Froelich, it was a, an established actor at the time and uh, went on to have a decent career. I mean, he's very expressive, but it just doesn't work quite the same way. And I actually kind of wonder if this is part of silent film conventions that I had to get used to, which is how people run. Um uh-huh something about the frame rate and everybody runs in in fast motion in this movie and they all do it like when especially Gustav Froelich when his freighter is like he like bends over when he runs but he stays upright yeah, I was about to say they're like that's where I'm <laughs> saying the the Jim Carrey-esque 
the weirdest scene is when there is in the beginning of the movie they're talking about and there was a metropolis of great beauty and there's just a bunch of people like daintily running around a fountain playing like hide and seek or you know tag it's just like him and some woman we never see again well she's one of the but they're running like that like kind of hunched over and yeah, yeah. she she's one of the uh, the entertainers of the garden oh. it's, it's much more clear in the restoration that the women are there purely as like escorts for the ah. men to come to enjoy its delights very very brave new world <laughs> exactly <laughs> so i i think as we round out here I'm very happy I saw this. I'm happy I own it. I'm sad I didn't really watch it till now. <laughs> Nicole gave this to me over a year ago, but I'm so happy I watched it. And I would love to see the cut from 2010 now because this movie was absolutely compelling to me. I, I think it holds its own so well because of the grandeur of not only not only just the set design and, and the amount of extras and, and all this is so big and bombastic and amazing and it holds up really well. But I do think having an infusion of something more contemporary as if 1984 too is contemporary, but that infusion for me, at least in this particular cut really added to that, to that effect for me. I really did enjoy it. So Nicole, awesome pick. I, I, I loved it. Uh, David, as someone who has now seen it as well, what were your thoughts? I mean, my, I'm, I'm glad I saw it too. It's been on my list forever to get around to, to see, uh, just never had, um, not for any, like I wasn't avoiding it. It just said never come up. Um, I really did enjoy it. And it was really fun for me too, as, as somebody who has a deep love of films and the, the history kind of behind them and knowing how much influence this has had to now see it for myself. I mean, C3PO wouldn't exist without this movie. Uh, there's stuff in here that I was, I was watching. I was like, oh, Blade Runner and Akira are so reminiscent of some of these shots of the city. And there's just so much stuff that we have today, contemporary stuff today, that is still being influenced by this movie, either directly or indirectly. So now to kind of have this in my mind as I watch stuff to kind of pick up on, I'm I'm very happy to have. Oh, good. I think you're absolutely right. Yeah, that that influence when we were watching Equilibrium and Nicole was pointing out the the marching to work. Now we know where that's from. Uh, oh, that it, stu- <laughs> totally agreed. Superman Metropolis is named after this film. That's another fun little one I want to throw here at the end. When was Superman? I was going to go on this whole like when was Superman first written? I'm just curious now. Do you happen to know? In the in the forties, yeah. Okay, very cool. Nicole, any final thoughts? Um, I just wanted to say, you know, I was surprised watching this again that the the robot, they didn't call it a robot in the original because the play where that word originated, R-U-R, was only six years before this movie. So it was not in the nomenclature uh, yet. They refer to the mechanical person as the machine mensch, the, the machine man. But the way when it's first animated when Rotvang is showing it to Frederson and saying, Ooh, you know, come look at my creation. And it stands up and it slowly walks over to him and it turns its head and looks at him. It's, it's unnerving. Mm-hmm. It's, it's actually intimidating looking. I didn't expect that. Yeah. So I expected it to just be like, Ooh, pretty, you know, sculpted looking robot design, but no, no it's, it's freaky. <laughs> 
But if I if I read it right, and correct me if I'm wrong, because I just saw this today, but wasn't the mad scientist lusting over Frederick's dead yes. wife? Mm-hmm. And then he was recreating her her image with this robot. Mm-hmm. And then he's like, oh, yeah, it's her, just without a soul. Yep. Nope, you read that correctly. <laughs> Horrifying. Yeah. Yep. Do you guys want to talk about uh, what it means to be human? We can always do that. <laughs> it's the end of a... Uh, we could. <laughs> end of a dystopian science fiction. I feel like we need to go. How many movies have I done that in now? Jeez. How many I mean, podcast episodes? Oh my gosh. It's the central question. I feel like we should just hyperlink to Blade Runner discussion. Yeah. It's the central question of most of science fiction. Yeah. Yes, it is. But we're not going to talk about that here. Check our back catalog. <laughs> Thanks again, Nicole. This was an Around the World pick. Our oldest movie yet. Again, next week is You Did This to Us. Future Me announced what it was at the beginning of the show, and it will be in the show notes as well. But let's go around the table so we can find everybody online. Nicole, uh, what have you been up to? I have a letterboxed account at Nicole underscore Davis that's got all of our released episodes listed and has uh, all my top 10 lists for, I think, the past six years of the movies, of uh, recent movies. Right on. And what about you, David? People can find me under the, under the username Davluz. That is D-A-V-L-U-Z. Find me on the internet, Twitter, and Instagram. See what I'm up to there. And I'm excited to bring an even older film in the future, Arrival of a Train. So look forward to that discussion. <laughs> <laughs> a full hour. It's too scary. I'm right yeah. out of the room. <laughs> You can find me uh, on Twitter at I am Brett Stewart. I have something different to promote this week. I am releasing some new music. If you've listened to my music in the past, it's under the stage name Rivers Rubin. You can find that on my Twitter if you go over there and search. But right now, I have a new single um, called Cold Comfort. And it's actually that one's actually a cover callback to an earlier episode of ours. It's a Glenn Hansard cover. And we talked about Glenn on this show with another Nicole pick. Um, But an original record is coming later in the month to follow. So be sure to check that out if you are interested at all in music. But that'll do it for myself, David and Nicole. We will see you next week with You Did This To Us. 